All right, take your Bibles tonight, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I do appreciate the opportunity to be here. I mean that. I'm going to say something I haven't said in a long time, and I, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I don't just get up in the pulpit and say things that you're supposed to say, uh, but I'm going to say something I haven't said in a long time. This is the most nervous I've been in a long time. And I have no idea why. Uh, it, it, all honesty, it's probably at least in, in some part, I have the utmost respect for your pastor. Uh, we've been, we supported him for years as a missionary, and uh, I've always just been uh, in awe of him, honestly, and what he's done and what he's doing. And uh, I sure don't want to, uh, I want to be a help to you. I want to help this church, and uh, if that happens, it'll, it'll take God, won't it? We've got to have God. Another reason I'm probably nervous is I do know that some of the greatest missionaries we support, we support 180-something missionaries, and a, an awful lot of those good missionaries are connected to this church in one way or the other. And uh, I've told my church some of the best missionaries we support come out of Capital City Baptist Church in Austin, and so that's a little bit intimidating. The third reason I'm probably nervous is I know David Armistead was here last week. And uh, he is out of our church, but don't blame me for him, okay? <laughs> and the last reason I think I'm nervous is because of the sermon I'm about to preach. <laughs> and uh, it's not, I wouldn't have chosen this sermon. Your pastor called me, I don't know how long ago, and said, would you preach a stewardship meeting at our church? I said, what do you mean by stewardship? And here's what he said. He said, whatever you want it to mean. Now, that is an open boy, I'm telling you. And I've been preaching for 35 years. They tell me I have over 4,000 sermons, and this is probably the last one I would have chosen. But God chose this one. How many of you here are over 40? Raise your hand, please. Praise the Lord. I'm glad to see that. How many of you uh, were raised in the city? Let me see your hands. How many of you were not raised in the city? Wow, I'm glad to see that. That's going to help me a whole lot. So before I get to Ephesians 2, let me just read this little thing I carry with me from time to time. It's just called remembering. And for those of you under 40, just take you a real quick two-minute nap, and we'll get back to you in a few minutes. It says, take a stroll with me. Close your eyes and go back before the Internet, before semi-automatics and crack, before Sega or Super Nintendo, way back. I'm talking about hide-and-go-seek at dusk, sitting on the porch. Simon says, kick the can, red light, green light, lunch boxes with a thermos, chocolate milk, going home for lunch, penny candy from the store, hopscotch, butterscotch, uh, skates with keys, jacks and mother may I. Hula hoops and sunflower seeds, whist, old maid, crazy eights. Here's the one I like, wax, lips, and mustaches. How many of you remember those just out of character? Man, I'm in the right place. Hallelujah. Mary Janes and saddle shoes, Coke bottles with the names of the cities on the bottom. Running through the sprinkler, circus pins, bobby pins, Mickey Mouse Club, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Fran and Ollie, Spin and Marty, and it was all in black and white. What about the girl who had the big bubbly handwriting, who dotted her eyes with hearts? The stroll, popcorn balls and sock cops. 
Remember when there were two types of sneakers for girls and boys, kids and PF flyers? And the only time you wore them to school was for gym, and the girls had to wear the ugly uniforms. Remember when it took five minutes for the TV to warm up? How many of you remember that? Yeah, you didn't watch TV. It took too long for it to come on. When nearly everybody's mom was at home when the kids got home from school. And nobody owned a purebred dog. <laughs> when a quarter was a decent allowance and another quarter was a huge bonus. When you'd reach into a muddy gutter for a penny and girls neither dated nor kissed until late high school, if then. And all the male teachers in public school wore neckties. When you got your windshield cleaned and the oil checked and your gas pumped without asking for it and all of it was for free. And you didn't pay for air. Yeah. And you got trading stamps to boot. And laundry detergent had free glasses or dishes or towels hidden inside the box. When any parent could discipline any kid or feed him or have him carry groceries and nobody, not even the kid, thought a thing about it. When it was considered a great privilege to be taken out to dinner to a real restaurant. When they threatened to keep kids back a grade if they failed. Yeah. I went to sixth grade with a boy 16 years old. He drove to the sixth grade. I'm not kidding. He couldn't pass sixth grade. That was in 1972. I called back last week and he's still there. <laughs> when the worst thing you could do at school was smoke in the bathroom or flunk a test or chew gum. When a 57 Chevy was everybody's dream car. Nobody ever asked where the car keys were because they were always in the ignition. And you got in real trouble if you locked the doors at home because nobody had a key. And playing baseball with no adults to help the kids with the rules of the game because back then baseball was not a psychological group learning experience. It was a game. Remember when stuff from the store came without safety caps and hermetic seals because nobody had yet ever tried to poison a perfect stranger. When being sent to the principal's office was nothing compared to the fate that waited that child when he got home. <laughs> Basically, we were in fear for our lives, but it wasn't because of drive-by shootings or drugs or gangs. Our parents and our grandparents were a much bigger threat. But we all survived because their love was greater than their threat. Things have changed, haven't they? And I think most of us would have to admit and be honest, most of those changes are for the worse. Now that probably does have a little bit to do with the message tonight, so I just thought we'd start with that. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to ask you to stand, if you would, as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read through verse 9. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
but God. Don't you love those little phrases in the Bible? But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm truly thankful for this opportunity, but I pray now, God, that you would take this frail creature of dust and God use me for your glory and may the Holy Ghost of God do what I can't. God, I plead through the blood of the Lord Jesus, not on my own merits, but on his, and ask you, Father, to use me now for your glory and help your people, I pray, and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, I tell people all the time, this is one of those sermons I preach that, uh, that uh, I don't believe hardly anybody here will do anything with it. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid most of you will take it lightly. You'll think some of the things I'm going to say are just silly and, and that it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. You've probably heard it about a fella that uh, was graduating from college and he'd already sent out invitations just sort of uh, off a whim, he decided to go down to the registrar, the dean's office, to make sure everything was in order. He got down there, checked his transcript, and he was one hour's credit short of graduating. And he told him, he said, I've already, I've already sent out invitations. This can't, you can't do this to me. And they said, son, there's nothing we can do. You're going to you're gonna have to take another class. He had to stay an entire semester to get his extra credit in order to graduate and get his degree. He was very angry and frustrated. He got a college uh, book uh, catalog to see what class to take. He thought, if I'm going to have to stick around another 16 weeks, I'll take the easiest class on campus. And he took a, he took a class called bird watching. That's called ornithology, if you really want to know. And so he takes this class in bird watching. He gets in the class first day the next semester and finds out that everybody on campus was taking it to get an easy hour's credit. And the professor realized it as well, and the professor decided he was going to make it the most difficult class on campus. And so the boy goes through that entire six weeks just borderline between a D and an F, and if he fails, he's going to have to stay another semester. He goes into the final exam very angry, very frustrated, knowing that if he doesn't pass, he's not going to get to graduate again. So he goes in there for the final exam, and again, the, the, the professor was bound and determined to fail everybody, so he passes out the test and tells all the students to turn it over. They turn it over, and there on a piece of paper are 50 pairs of bird legs with a line under each one saying, identify the bird. <laughs> well, that young man, man, he comes unglued. He's just about to have a temper tantrum. He sits there and grinds his teeth and, and just, I mean, mumbling under his breath, stares around, looks at everybody. And after about 15 minutes, he just stood up and said, this is ridiculous. And the professor said, young man, sit down right now. He sat back down. He's watching everybody else. He can't even identify one pair of bird legs, just bird legs. That's all that's on the paper. He looks at it for another 10 or 15 minutes. He stands up again. And he says, professor, this is not fair. You're just trying to fail us. He said, young man, another outburst like that, and I'll throw you out of my class. He sat back down, and he looked at that paper, and he stared at it, and he's thinking, another 16 weeks, I can't believe this. And finally, after about five more minutes, he had had all he could stand. He stood up, and he said, Professor, this is ridiculous. It's unfair. You can't do this to us. He said, young man, I told you I was going to throw you out of here. What's your name? He pulled up his breeches leg and said, you tell me, smarty. 
Now, there's a moral to this story. <clears throat> you may not be as smart as you think you are. I've about decided independent King James fundamental Bible-believing Baptists are the smartest people on the planet, if you'll ask them. We might have a few more things to learn. So bear with me tonight. Did you, how many of you have ever read the book, Henry and the Great Society, just out of curiosity? Oh, my. Everybody should read that book. Henry and the Great Society. I do not read fiction. That is the only fiction book I've read in 30 years. And uh, I recommend it everywhere I go. And I read that book, and it prompted me uh, to, to develop a message on the theme of that book, in my opinion. And you've got to remember now, I, I, grew up in, I grew up in Alabama. I'm sorry. I apologize, but I did. I was born the youngest of 10 children. In 1960, I was born to my mother who, by the way, got married when she was 13, had her first child when she was 14, had her next child when she was 15, had her next child when she was 17. I was the 10th, and I was born when she was 30. We lived about 30 miles from Huntsville, Alabama, right outside of Arab. Right outside of Arab is Huleco. Right outside of Huleco is Joppa. And right outside of Joppa is where I grew up in Hogjaw, Alabama. <laughs> it's on the map now, by the way. And uh, the way I grew up, I'm not just reminiscing. This actually has a point to it. Uh, when I was growing up in the 60s, uh, things were a lot different back then. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Back in those days, now, now with nine brothers and sisters and 190 cousins and, and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, family gatherings were interesting, to say the least. And we grew up, when I was little, I never wore shoes anywhere I went. We grew up sort of in the country. We certainly didn't grow up in the city. Huntsville was the closest thing to us, and we didn't go there but about once a year. And uh, I, I say we were a lot more creative than kids nowadays because uh, the way we would play games is we had to make up our own games. And uh, we were very, very intelligent. <laughs> and uh, a game we created, somebody needs to come out with this and put it in a game board fashion, but it's a real technical, very involved game. This will help some of you kids if you remember this. It's called Run Around the House. <laughs> and so I want to tell you real quick how to play Run Around the House. What you do is you've got about 10, 15, 20 kids, and back in 1967, 68, when I was playing this game, uh, we didn't have street lights, we didn't have flood lights, we didn't have motion detector lights, we had moonlight. It was dark, okay? And so we would uh, get on the front porch, and somebody had to be it. You didn't want to be it. Whoever's it would go around and get back behind the house, and I mean, it's dark out there. And then everybody else is on the front porch, and you've got to go around the house and get back to home base before they touch you. Now, I'm talking about 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, about 78 to 80 degrees, mosquitoes biting. No air conditioner inside, so you might as well stay outside. No television inside, so you might as well stay outside. And we'd play run around the house until everybody was just stinky and sweaty and then go in and get a bath. Now, if you were fortunate, you got in the bathtub first. Oh, many a night I had to get in the same tub water that two or three had already been in. Sound like fun? <laughs> hey, that's just the way it was. I'm not making this up. This is a real life story. But, but that's just the way we grew up. When we play, I learned to play, I played college baseball. And uh, I'll tell you how I got good enough to play college baseball. Me and my brothers, and I've got a brother that when he was in high school, he was clocked at throwing 95 miles an hour. 
And I grew up with him, and catching him will make you a pretty good ball player. But what we did is we'd get out on the gravel road back behind our house. You could stand out there and play on that gravel road for hours because nobody came by. And we'd get us a big old pile of rocks down here. And uh, that was the pitcher. And then we'd go up here and we'd 60 feet, 6 inches, and we'd rub out a bare spot, and that was home plate. And we had a steel rod. It was a half inch in diameter, about the size of my finger. Just a steel rod about that long. That's the bat. Okay, so I'd get up here with my steel rod, and my brother would be up there throwing the rocks, not a baseball. We didn't have a baseball. Rocks. I'm not kidding. Now, my brother could make a curveball with a baseball look like it fall off the end of a table. Can you imagine what he could do with them big flat rocks? And here's the way you play baseball with rocks. He'd throw the rock at me, and if I hit it in the air past him, that's a single. And if I hit another one in the air past him, it's a single. Another one's a single. Now I've got bases loaded, and every single's a run. If I hit it in front of him, that's a strike. If I hit it in the air and he catches it, that's an out. So he's sitting there throwing me rocks until I get out, and then, he throws, and then I throw him rocks. And I'm not making this up. There's been plenty of times I would get, you know, I'm standing up there batting, and he's throwing one, and he's just throwing three or four curveballs right by me, and I'm thinking, I'm not moving this time. I'm not moving this time. Neither did the ball. Bam, rock right upside the head. And when we got through playing baseball, rock ball, I'm telling you, we were a bloody mess from head to toe. I'm not making, I mean, I can still see my brother with blood flowing out of his eye. We've been playing ball. Well, I moved over to, I moved to McMinnville, Tennessee, and they let me try out for the Little League baseball team. I ended up batting 480 one year in high school. You know why? After hitting them rocks, that baseball looked like a pumpkin coming in there. <laughs> no problem. You'll get pretty good at baseball if you'll start hitting the rocks. We used to climb the trees. How many of y'all ever climbed skinny trees and ride them to the ground? Boy, wasn't that fun. We had a good time. I mean, things were a lot different back then. You know, nobody had ADD back then. Everything you did, you worked, you sweat. I grew I was picking cotton when I was five years old. My daddy died when I was eight. My mama put me at the end of a cotton row, and she said, you pick all that cotton until you get the end of that row. We used to go around outside and just chase lightning bugs and take them little things off and make bracelets for our little sister, you know, or something around the neck. And everything we did, uh, we, we'd play on the cotton bales, had corn cob fights in the barn. Did y'all ever do that? Things were just a lot different, weren't they? And, uh, and school was different. I, had, I was in the fifth. Now, listen, my school, y'all, I know y'all have got a school here. My school, public school in Arab, Alabama, I went in a, to a school that had grades kindergarten through 12th grade, and there was 178 students in all 12 grades. My teacher was Mrs. Cook in the fifth grade. And the fifth grade was on this side of the class, and the sixth grade was on this side of the room. She taught both classes and had no discipline problem. In the public school. Say, so how'd that work? Well, I was sitting one time right on the front pew about where that young man is, or front pew, front seat, and uh, Mrs. Cook was standing in front of me and she said something and I smarted off to her. And when I did, she took this part of her hand, not this part, she, she just reacted. I smarted off, she went, bam! And I went, ah! Oh. I was cured of ADD. She had no more trouble with me the rest of that year. When I was in the ninth grade, I had a, I had a um, principal, a, a teacher, and we called him Slinky. We shouldn't have, but one of his arms didn't work. It just, he had no control over it, and it just was like this. 
So we called him Slinky. And when he crossed his arms, he'd take it and throw it up and then catch it like that right there. <laughs> but because of that, his right arm was just massive. And first day of civics class in that grade, he was up there and some kid smarted off. And he said, come here, young man. And that young man got up that desk. He made that young man put his hands on his desk and then made him pull his legs back as far as he could. And I promise you, God knows my heart. I'm not lying to you. Not. I, saw, I saw Mr. Slinky take that paddle. And when he come and hit that boy, both feet come off the ground. I was a real good boy in that class. I've got, I've got, I've got a man in my church. He's one of my best church members. His, his teacher in the uh, seventh or eighth grade, I forget which one he told me, public school teacher led him to the Lord in the classroom. That lady, Mrs. Haley, shook my hand the first Sunday that I pastored First Baptist Church Carthage, where I'm at now, which we're now Cornerstone because I left and started Cornerstone. She shook my hand and she said, Brother Ron, I've been praying for you for 20 years. First time I ever saw her. I said, what do you mean? She said, I've been praying for you for 20 years. She was in her upper 70s at that time. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, I don't understand. She said, I've been asking God to send me a King James Bible-believing pastor for 20 years. I tell people, everywhere I go, whatever happens at Cornerstone is the fruit of Miss Rhoda Lee Haley's prayer life. I hope you got some ladies like that here. But things were just a whole lot different and everything we did required energy. I had a lady come to me not too long after I moved to Carthage and she said, my, my son, I can't control him. I just thought I'd find out if you could give me some counsel. She said, he's 11 years old. I took him to the doctor and the doctor said he's got a chemical imbalance. And I said, ma'am, my daddy knew how to balance them chemicals. Now you say what you want. I know there's probably some real educated people in here, but I'm going to tell you something. If we'd get back to living like we used to live, we wouldn't have some of the problems we got today. Kids need to learn that work is a good thing. It's a fun thing. They need to be trained how to work with their hands and how to sweat. Now, I don't care if they live in the city or the country. It's good for them. Now, that being said, as an introduction, let's look at our text in Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says, notice what it says in verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked, now get it, according to the course of this world. It says, in time past. You see that, don't you? All right, look down at verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation, what? In times past. Look down at verse 11. Wherefore, remembering that ye being what? In time past. Verse 4, but God. The scripture is abundantly clear that the course of this world is the direction you were going when you got saved. Uh, you were going the course of this world, but after you get saved, you're not supposed to go according to the course of this world. This world's going in one direction, and God's people's not supposed to be going in that direction. This world's telling God's people how to dress, how to eat, and what to believe about politics and the economy. I really do believe what God says about the economy. I believe morality is more important than good business decisions. I'm not saying God doesn't take good business into account. I'm just telling you, if, God, if we're ever going to see America get blessed again, we're going to have to get back to God again. Uh, but I, I, I preached Sunday night to my kids. I was preaching to the family, and I said, I'm just going to prove to you this world has more influence over you than you care to admit. How many of you drink power drinks? And a bunch of them raised their hand. I said, there's my proof. 
I said, you don't even know what's in them. You, had a, you have no clue, but because some athlete drank it or somebody promoted it or advertised it, you'll put it in your body and not have a clue what you're putting in your body. I'm not preaching on power drinks tonight, but I'm just telling you that world's influence has more, it has more to do with what we're doing than we realize. But what I want to discuss uh, tonight is the course of this world, which is run by Satan, and it's heading in the wrong direction. And please hear me, church. I know that I'm talking to what I consider. I don't know what anybody else thinks, but my experience over the last 20 years at Cornerstone Baptist Church and meeting people out of this church and knowing your pastor and reading prayer letters, I'm probably in one of the best churches in this country without a doubt, but I'm telling you, this world is consuming your mind and your heart more than you realize. And it is a major distraction. And the world is getting more and more complex all the time. God says in 2 Peter 3, 17, Beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. The word stead, there's like a homestead. It's where you stake off some property, you stake a claim, you set down some roots and say, I will not be moved. That's the word stead. The word fast, they're talking about being steadfast is the word that we get for fasten or firm or stable or unyielding. It's like God in the Old Testament saying, remove not the ancient landmarks that the people of God need to get settled and grounded and not let this world influence us. Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Proverbs 24, my son, fear thou the Lord and the king and meddle not with them that are given to change. But all the changes of this world I'm not, trying, I'm not going to preach on standards tonight. Let me just give you an example on standards. I watch what good people, I'm talking about good people wear. And you can tell that the world influences what they wear. Some of the best ladies in my church now wear things they wouldn't have wore 10 years ago. It's not immodest, it's just fashionable. I'm not, I'm not even saying it's wrong. I'm just telling you can tell that the world's influencing them. You can tell that the world's influencing the young people. You can tell that the world's influencing Baptists. I could go on and on and on, but let me ask you to take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're getting to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me ask a question uh, to the men in particular. Uh, would you have married your wife if she had told you right up front that she wanted to keep seeing other men after the wedding? <laughs> I always ask that afraid somebody's going to raise their hand and say, I would have married my wife. No, please don't do that. Let me give you another scenario. A man and a woman get married, and after the wedding, they get in the, in the vehicle uh, to leave the church, and they're going down the road, and uh, the man looks at his new wife after just getting married and says, oh, you're going to love the place I've picked out. I know I kept it as a surprise, and I just want you to know it's, we'll be there in two hours, and you're going to love it. She says, what are you talking about? And he said, the, the place I've picked for our honeymoon, the place that I've picked for us to spend the next week, and, and, and I spent all this time researching, and I'm telling you, you're going to love it. I can't wait till we get there. And she said, listen, I agreed to marry you, and I'll take your last name, but you take me home. I ain't going nowhere with you. I'm not leaving mom and daddy. Now, that'd be absurd, wouldn't it? Because we know that marriage means you have to give up some things. I personally believe that one of the greatest detriments to American Christianity American Christianity, which I think is the weakest Christianity on the planet, is that we're not willing to give up some things. And we really do not realize what it's doing to us. So in this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Paul the Apostle is talking about the simplicity that is in Christ. He says, Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now watch what he says. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, Paul is talking about Christians. He's talking to the church, not to lost people. Now, we know that the devil complicates the gospel. He wants people to believe it's Jesus plus this, this, and this, where the Bible says it's Jesus only. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Amen? But see, Paul is not talking really uh, to lost people. He's talking to the church And he says to the church that one of my fears is uh, that the devil is going to corrupt you like he did Eve. How did he do that? Well, the Bible here says in verse 3, he beguiled Eve through his subtlety so that your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know what he did? He gave her an option that God didn't give her. Now, that may not sound profound to you. But the simple fact of the matter is, and I'm one of those guys, and I know that everybody can't be this way, and I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. My philosophy in life is (laughs) K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) It makes life easy for me. Okay? And I'll explain that as we move along. But I'm going to try to ingrain in your mind something tonight that you're not going to want to swallow, you're not going to want to believe, you're going to think I'm just... Just being silly, many of you will think there's no way that this has negatively affected you. I'm telling you that according to the Word of God, Paul says he wants you to be careful that you do not get corrupted like Eve got corrupted. And notice again, I'm having to emphasize this on purpose, in verse 3, lest by any means as the serpent, as the serpent, as the serpent beguiled Eve, through his subtly, so your minds should be corrupted. I title this sermon, Too Many Options. As Christians in 2013, we have too many options in our lives. I realize we can't go back to the horse and buggy days. I realize we can't uh, stop what the world calls progress. But I'll tell you what we as the people of God can do. We can curb the corruption in our lives by clinging to the simplicity that is in Christ. I know people that got rid of their television and have 328 DVDs. What's the difference? Cable TV now with 250, 300 channels. Um, Video games that are... It blows my mind that a nation will watch a school shooting and start talking about getting rid of guns. Alcohol causes a death every 38 minutes in this country. Every 38 minutes in this country, somebody dies because of alcohol. If you're serious about keeping innocent people alive, then outlaw alcohol. And while you're at it, outlaw all video games. Every single one of them. You say, well, my kid plays and I've watched it and there's nothing wrong with it. They'll get bored with it. And then it'll take something else. 
How did I survive without video games? How did I survive without all this stuff? I'm not, now don't misunderstand me. I'm telling you this is going somewhere. I'm not saying that something in and of itself is wrong, but I'm telling you what, it's piled up in our lives to the point to our minds are flooded with it. I guarantee you there's probably, even in this church tonight, probably somebody Sunday morning was sitting here and while Brother Adam was preaching, you was playing a video game in your mind. I wouldn't doubt that at all. It's very, very common. And so Paul says, I want you to cling to the simplicity that is in Christ. If anybody understood this, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul gave his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. He said, all this stuff. And then he said, but I count all that but done. That I may win Christ. And then what he said, what did he say? This one thing I do. And then he says, forgetting those things which are behind. And a lot of people interpret that to mean that Paul's saying you've got to forget the past. No, you don't. Paul said, I'm forgetting those things. You can find many places in the Bible where the Bible teaches you're supposed to learn from the past. And you're supposed to teach history. How can you forget the past and teach history? One of the reasons most churches, thank God you've got a school, most churches, their kids know nothing about Baptist history or American history. The only way our kids can appreciate what they've got is if they know the men that bled and died for it. So you've got to study history. How can you forget the past and study history? Paul said, there were a lot of things in my life and I was busy doing all this stuff, but oh, I've forgotten that and now this one thing I do. Isn't that what he said? Anybody remember how KFC got popular, Kentucky Fried Chicken? I don't know if it's big down here. It may not even be big in Tennessee or Kentucky anymore, but it started out in Kentucky. KFC was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Colonel Sanders was the originator, and their slogan was, we do one thing, and we do it right. They didn't have, back in those days, KFC didn't have buffets. They didn't have baked beans. They didn't have potatoes. They just had chicken. And everybody would go get a bucket of chicken because they mastered it because that's all that they did. You know what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, by whom the world is crucified unto me. Paul didn't just say, I am crucified. He said, the world's crucified. It's dead to me. It has no hold on me. It doesn't mean anything to me. If you remember the analogy of marriage that he's using here in 2 Corinthians 11, James chapter 4 says, Ye adulteresses and adulterers, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enmity with God. Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Does the Bible not say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world? Listen to Paul's testimony. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. Just listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, what Paul said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 12, Paul's telling them his ministry and his life. And he said, our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshy wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to yours. He said, our lifestyle is one of simplicity and godly sincerity. Amen. This one thing I do, I repeat, simple is better. Most of us, most of us have too many options in our lives. And you might, you might get hung up on the illustrations here if you're not careful, but I really do believe it's what the Lord wants me to show you, so be patient with me tonight. Now, I don't, my wife, my wife and I are so different. I've been married for 35 years almost, and she's, she, is, she is the best thing that ever happened to me. 
And uh, I, so I don't mean to put her down. She's, she's, she's more talented than me. She's smarter than me. She really is. She's, uh, she's got more, she's gifted. She's more giving. She's more gracious. She's more, she's even better looking than me, believe it or not. But if you take my wife into, I don't know if you know, you have Baskin Robbins here. Don't take my wife there. My wife will go in a place like that, and how many flavors they have? It's suicidal to take my wife in there. She'll walk down through there and say, Oh, I'd like, oh. Could I have, oh. Help. Can I have one? <laughs> Drives me crazy. I walk in, walk up there and say, chocolate. <laughs> She'll say, but you've never tried. I said, don't want it. I ain't got tired of chocolate yet. Long as I like it, why, why even take a gamble? Man, that's just a whole lot easier. You go to these restaurants now and they hand you a menu and you start to open it. It'd drive you crazy. I was, in, I was in Houston preaching a few years ago, and the pastor told me after church, he said, Brother so-and-so is going to take you out to eat after church. So I said, okay, that'd be great. And uh, so we're going down the road, and he said, hey, you got anything in particular you'd like? I said, Brother, whatever you like is fine with me. Now, listen, whatever you put on the table in front of me, I'll eat it, okay? I'll be nice about it, but I'm, I don't, that doesn't mean I like it. And I said, whatever you want is fine with me. And he said, all right, great, we'll go to Chinese. And in my heart, I went, Ugh. And so I went ahead. It was fine. You know, nowadays you go to Chinese buffets, they got everything anyway, so... We went the next night to church, and the pastor said, uh, got this brother back here who wants to take you out to eat tonight. I said, that's fine, no problem. We're going down the road. He said, hey, brother, anything you'd like to eat in particular? I said, no, brother, anything you want to find me? He said, how about Chinese? I said, that'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, the next night, we got in the car, and brother Ed Tierbach was going to take me out to eat. And brother, uh, brother uh, the pastor said, uh, I'm going to get brother Ed to take you out to eat tonight. I believe it was brother Tierbach. And, and we're going down the road, and uh, he said, uh, hey, brother, anything you'd like to eat? Tonight's special. And I said, no, just whatever you like is fine. I'm fine with me. And he said, how about Chinese? I said, do I look Chinese to you? <laughs> I'm in Carthage, Tennessee, 2,500 people in my town. We got Chinese and Mexican and I don't know what all we got. I just want some American. I'm not against all that stuff. It's amazing. But I've noticed in our town of 2,500 people, we've almost got as many pharmacies as we do restaurants. I just thought I'd throw that in. When I was growing up, my, my, we'd go to Alabama, back to Tennessee every year. My dad died when I was eight, and we'd go to Alabama or Tennessee once a year, depending on which place we were living. And we couldn't wait because once a year, we got to go out and eat. Once a year to Burger King. And you know what their slogan was? I still remember this. Their slogan was, have it your way. The only problem with that is daddy didn't believe that. You got a hamburger. You didn't say, I didn't want pickle. You didn't say that. You'd either get the back of a hand or a hamburger snatched. I mean, you, you watch kids today go into a, a buffet with 256 items and say, ain't got nothing I like. Is that not true? Have y'all ever stopped to consider more people died in the Old Testament from murmuring than anything else? 
You ever wonder how God feels about a people called independent Baptists who read a verse that says, having food and raiment, let us be there with content? <laughs> I, I told a man one time, I've told my church that I'd, I'd like to find a rich man that would invest in a restaurant business that I would like to, just the name of it would work. The title of my restaurant would be Take It or Leave It. You'd have no options. You'd know it's good and you'd go in there and get it. And it just, it just wouldn't have, it takes them forever to get the order and then they don't get it right. So just call it take it or leave it. <laughs> How many times have you ladies offered your children a snack at night and got frustrated? <laughs> you know, and, and of course, I, my wife, we've, this is one of the things we fussed about when our kids were little. She'd say, it, it's 8 30, 9 o'clock. And she'd say, okay. Time for bed. Y'all want a snack? Now, what kid in his right mind's going to say, not me, I want to go to bed? <laughs> and so she would say, y'all want a snack? And, of course, the answer is, yeah, yeah. And they'd all run in there to the table, and she'd say, what do you want? And ten minutes later, through gritted teeth, sit down and be quiet, and you'll eat what you get. <laughs> Too many options. I've walked into the cabinet before, even in other people's houses, and opened up the doors, and there's five boxes of cereal. And all of them half empty. And most of it gets thrown away. Amen. Four or five different kinds of chips. All opened. Most of it gets thrown away. Mama, these ain't any good. Of course, what I like is when they say, Daddy, taste this and tell me if it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Is this milk soured? <laughs> Check it yourself. <laughs> We've got too many options. Lady stands in front of a closet. I ain't got nothing to wear. You could take the rod out and the clothes would stay there. <laughs> Am I right? And, and hey, I'm, how many times, don't you raise your hand, how many times has a lady stood and just, this is just a real silly example, and she'll get frustrated. Going through all those options and then saying, I ain't got nothing to wear. And you say, what's all these? Well, I'm going to get into them one of these days. <laughs> huh? She's been saying that for 10 years. And then I don't, I don't want to be the man that makes that same mistake. A man who, who, who y'all don't just bear with me, okay? We're just having fun for a minute because it's fixing to get ugly. And, and a man that'll actually get a suit out and then grab a shirt and say, Honey, do you think this looks okay? Y'all see this shirt? It's the only shirt you'll ever see on this preacher. White. I don't have to stand in front of a closet and wonder which one to wear. You see these shoes? They're the only dress shoes I own. This one shoe I wear. <laughs> it 
It just, I'll tell you, I like things simple. I'm not going to sit around and wonder about how many ties can you wear? I know you ladies think it's time to move on. So we get to men. Albert Swasser, a lady, she, he was a third world doctor missionary. They, a lady gave him another tie one time. He always wore a white suit, had the same tie, same hat and everything. She gave him a tie and he said, Mama, what's this for? And she said, it's a tie for you to wear. He's, she, he said, she said, you need two ties. He said, for one neck? <laughs> Take your Bible, please, and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Part of this is just to lay the groundwork. But I will say this. <laughs> my, my son, he called me. He's in Corpus Christi. He lives there. He called me. He was hoping to come up here tomorrow, but I don't think it's going to work out. And uh, He was at the house a few years ago, and I told my wife, I said, watch this. And he was sitting there late at night, and he's, he's graduated from college, went to medical school. Now he's not even a doctor. He's going to some kind of medical sales or something. And... and uh, he come in. I said, son, you want a little ice cream before we go to bed? And he said, yeah, boy, that'd be great. So I got him some vanilla ice cream and uh, just walked over and handed it to him. I said, here. And he looked at it and said, that's it? I said, yeah. What's the problem? I knew what he'd do. He said, no, uh, no chocolate sauce or peanuts or crunched Oreos. Or... You realize how many people don't even know what vanilla ice cream tastes like anymore? My wife makes the best fried potatoes you've ever put your mouth into. I'm telling you. And she'll stir them things up and she'll mix a little pepper in there and she'll put a little onion in there and she'll put a little salt in there and then she'll put a little bit more of this and that in there. And I've seen people come to my house, she put them fried potatoes on the plate and before they ever taste them, grab that jar of red sugar and just cover them up. They don't even know what potatoes taste like. And they don't appreciate it. Now, you can think about this before we get through. Maybe God will grab one of you and say, you need to think about this. It's doing some things to you you don't realize. But bear with me. I didn't say it's a sin to eat ketchup. <laughs> I didn't say it's a sin to put Oreos on your vanilla ice cream. I'm not point, that's not the point. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Is that what it says? That they hear the word of God, but it's choked out with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. Chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Bear with me. Luke 21. Look at verse 34. Luke chapter 21. Verse 34. The Bible says, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged. Notice it's your hearts that are overcharged with surfeiting, right? What does that mean? Does anybody know? Excess. You look up any dictionary, including 1828, it means excessiveness. Guess what most dictionaries will tell you it means? Overindulgence in food or drink. But then it says this in the dictionary. Or disgust caused by excess. Frustration. 
with so much stuff in our lives. Frustration because I, I hope it's not this way here, but for a while before I could get my families headed in the right direction, one night they was running over to this ball field with Sally, and the next night they were running over to this ball field with Junior, and one night Mama had to go to this game so she could see one of them play while the other one was playing over here, and they didn't want to miss the whole thing, so they spread themselves out, and they're always running by McDonald's because they ain't got time to sit down and eat a meal. Or when they do sit down to eat a meal, one of them's in front of the Internet, and one of them's in front of the television. One of them's got the iPod out. One of them's texting. And families don't even talk anymore. The Bible says, take heed to yourselves. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. So the Bible teaches that you've got to be careful about surfeiting, which is talking about excess, in particular excess in food and drink. Or the disgust which is caused by that. I mean, how many people have got up from the table and said, Man, I'm miserable. And I'm telling you, folks, maybe somebody will grab this. Well, I'll tell you what, let me do. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and let's have a little Bible study. 1 Corinthians 10. Y'all are Bible believers, right? Okay. Let's have a little Bible study. I never do get this message all in anyway, so we'll just stop when we feel like we need to. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be you what? Idolaters. I call this message when I preach it in my church idolatry in the dining room. Because he says here, neither you be idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink. Isn't that odd? The context is idolatry, and he says, they rose up to eat and drink. Take your Bible and turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Now, this is where you've got to go to work. I want you to see the Bible in this, not just my word for it. Go to Numbers chapter 11. I'll hurry. Numbers chapter 11. Look at verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a what? Lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the Big Mac. What are they lusting after? Food. Is that, is that true? They're lusting for food. God called it idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn to Psalm 78. I don't expect I'm showing you anything. I tell people this all the time. I probably never preach anything new. I just say it in such a way to get somebody mad enough to do something about it. There's nothing new about this. It's been in the Bible for a long time. It's probably been preached here before. I'm not trying to show you. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I wished I could get everybody here, though, to realize the stuff in our lives is doing something to our minds, and we don't even realize it. I said this 15, 20 years ago in my church, and now some of my church members are coming back to tell me that they've got the proof now. I used to tell them 15, 20 years ago, you let your kids go to these fast food restaurants, and then you let them play those video games, and you let them sit in front of that computer all the time, and you're going to see some health issues in this country you've never seen before. And a lady came to me after a boy started having seizures, 
And she said, Brother Ron, the doctor's first question was, does he spend much time on the computer? And then another lady came to me not long after that, and she said, I want to give you this, this catalog for the video games that our kids have been playing. She said, we got rid of it. And in the catalog of this Atari video game, I don't know what it's called, but all I know it's an Atari brand, and it had in big, bold print, prolonged activity with this game has been known to cause seizures. And then it went on to say, so we recommend that each child who plays this game after one hour take a 15-minute break. I, I preached a series of sermons in my church called Healthy Habits for the Holy. I'm not a health nut. I, I'm not against health nuts, but I'm not one. I, I'm, I'm just not. But to, in that study, in that series, in order to help my folks, because I knew of some things I wanted them to know about, I went out and bought. Now, it just happened to be McDonald's, okay? So I'm, it, it just happened to be McDonald's. I'm not trying to slam McDonald's. But I bought a McDonald's hamburger, put it on top of the refrigerator. Two weeks later, I took the wrapper off, and it looked like the day you bought it. The chemicals that we're putting in our body is affecting us more than we realize. I'm, do what you want to with that. Don't get mad at me. I'm not, I don't preach against McDonald's, but I'm telling you there's some things going on most Americans don't even want to think about. Uh, did I tell you to go to Psalm 78? Look at verse 17. And they sinned, sinned, sinned. How did they sin? Yet more against him. How? By provoking uh, the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Is that in the Bible? I wonder sometimes in America if the reason we don't walk with God is because our minds are always on something else. Look down at what it says in this same chapter in verse 29. So they did eat and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. Let's go to Proverbs 23, first of all. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, verse 20, somebody tell me what a riot is, R-I-O-T. It's out of control, isn't it? Well, the Bible says here in Proverbs 23, verse 20, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. You know, we, we go to the New Testament and say, the Bible says evil communications corrupt good manners. You need to stay away from that crowd. God says stay away from them people who can't control their diet. Does he not? I wonder, what, why is, is this important to God? I'm not, don't, please don't put words in my mouth. Not, I was talking to your pastor early today, and he's talking about hearing me say something about soft drinks or soda on, the, on a sermon I preached, and it's true. I tell people they ought to try to stay away from being addicted to anything. They ought to try to. I'm a, most everybody in America is addicted to something. I mean, seriously. But the reason I do that is all my life, I've heard some of these preachers get up and preach against smoking and preach against drinking and then eat like animals. And so I told my church, I don't think God's any more upset with a guy that smokes one pipe at night or a cigar at night than a man that drinks four Mountain Dews in a day. 
I'll guarantee you that one of those is worse than the other, and it might surprise you which one. I just think we're overbalanced when we preach against some of that stuff and ignore the rest of the Bible. And I, and I drink a soft drink every now and then. I don't think it's a sin to drink a soft drink. I don't think it's wise to be addicted to it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I just think we ought to be careful about getting addicted to that stuff because then it'll occupy our minds. Amen. All right, look what the Bible says here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you're probably there and I'm not. Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. By the way, let me just go ahead and tell you that why I believe God put this message on my heart in a stewardship meeting is if you're going to be a good steward, you might have to get rid of some stuff. You can't be a good steward of so much. You really can't. I can't. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, God's telling them before they go into the promised land, beware, beware that thou what? Forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when, watch it, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God. He said, you're going to get your belly full and forget me. And people say, well, I just think you're making too much of that. I can tell you one thing. Back in the olden days when a farmer went to church on Sunday morning and then sat out on the porch Sunday afternoon, he could think about that sermon. But you don't think about it sitting at that restaurant with that world's music in the background. Most of us, if listen, when I was growing up, they had blue laws. You couldn't, oh, restaurants closed down on Sunday. Gas stations closed on Sunday. Grocery stores closed on Sunday. You couldn't do anything on Sunday. Why? It was the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. And I remember when Christians were saying, Oh, my soul, I can't believe you're going out to eat on Sunday, the Lord's day. I was lost. And I remember Christians who wouldn't dare go, they wouldn't go to Walmart on Sunday. And we come to this place and here, in my opinion, you hear one of the best preachers in this country every Sunday. And all that stuff gets in here, but it never gets done in the heart because by the time it gets a chance to get to the heart, some other things beat it to the punch. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Uh, 28. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 45. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look at verse 45. The Bible says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Do you know what Deuteronomy 28 is? First part of the chapter is about all the blessings they'll get if they do right. Last part is about all the curses they'll get if they do wrong. And here it says in verse 45 at the end of the verse, to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. Now watch this. And they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever. Why is he going to curse them? Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart. Why didn't they? For the abundance of all things. It robbed them of their joy. It robbed them of their gladness. I've been, now your pastor can tell this a whole lot better than I can, but I've been into Haiti. I've been into the Dominican. I've been into third world countries where they'll sit for three hours and listen to you preach on a concrete block. 
on a wooden beam with no back to support them and no padded pews. And they'll come in there. I'm telling you, we packed out in eight different churches I preached in on a dirt floor, 150, 200 people uh, in a place not much bigger than this platform. And they'll sit there. And if you don't preach for an hour, they're going to get upset with you. But they don't have a big screen back at the house. They don't have a restaurant down the street. They don't have a Cadillac in the parking lot. They don't have a DVD player on the back seat of their Suburban. I preached a message to the youth one night in my church, and I'm usually one of the last people to leave my church. I just stick around. I enjoy the people of God. Man, I stick around. And uh, that's just me. But this particular night, I needed to see somebody, and I saw them going out the door, so I was going to go get them. And I hadn't been through preaching five, ten minutes. And this, this devastated me. One of the families in my church was pulling out of the parking lot, and I, I saw, it wasn't who I was looking for. I was looking for somebody else. But when I saw them going down the parking lot, uh, driveway, they was already, the kids in the back seat already had a DVD player on. They just got out of church. Now, how much of that sermon do you think they'll remember? It isn't going to happen. The devil knows how to rob the people of God. And he'll put things in their heart so that the Word of God can't get in the heart. He says right here in this verse, in verse 47, that the reason they don't serve him with joyfulness and gladness of heart is because of the abundance of all things. When I was in the Dominican, I'm telling you, it blew my mind to see kids that were 10, 11, 12, 13, 10 times happier than American kids. I had a, we had a, one of my men, I walked out of a church, I preached in over there, and they said, Brother Ron, come here, come here. And I ran out there, and they said, look up on that hill. I looked up on that hill, and there was a, a little bitty black boy. He had hardly a stitch on, barefooted, and he was on a bicycle grinning from ear to ear, and they said, come on. I thought, what's the big deal? I've seen a kid on a bicycle before. Man, he's pedaling with everything he's got, going as fast as he can. He gets right down there in front of me and takes his barefoot and goes, and sticks it in that tire and stops that thing on a dime. I said, did he do what I think he just did? They said, yeah. I said, tell him to do it again. That boy came down there, and with no brakes on that bicycle, he'd take his heel, it was like leather, and stick it against that tire and stop that thing on a dime. I went to their houses, and they were sweeping the dirt floor, and I'd walk in the living room, and they'd have my picture on the wall. I felt like the smallest, sorriest Christian on the planet. Those kids over there in a one-room house with four and five kids getting a bowl of rice a day were happier than kids in America with a computer and a TV in their own room. What happened? Too much stuff. And we can pretend it's not bothering us. We can pretend like we've got it under control. And maybe all of you do. I asked God about this message. This is not the message I thought I'd be preaching. I never thought I'd preach this message at Capital City. In Austin, Texas. I really didn't. I don't even know how you're going to apply this message. That's going to be up to you. But I'm telling you, our hearts and our minds, you know what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said? He said, God so designed the human heart so that it could only adequately pursue one object at a time. I'll tell you something that happened to me, Brother Adam. After I got a seminary, I graduated from Southern Baptist Seminary. I had a master's degree in theology and you know Bible. And I started devouring commentaries and cassette tapes back in those days. And uh, I mean just 
hours a day to learn my Bible. And after about a year of that, this is just one of those vivid memories you have when God really teaches you something. I'm in there devouring cassette tapes and commentaries every morning, getting my act together as a preacher, and God was teaching me a lot. And one morning, I, I walk, I, I'm an early riser. I got up about 5.30 that day, and I walked into my study, and I grabbed a commentary and opened up, and as if God spoke in an audible voice, but he didn't, he said to me, you interested in what I've got to say? See, this just isn't about food and games and gadgets and iPods and Mountain Dews and Big Macs. Sometimes we can get too much in our lives that's good stuff. God says, be still and know that I am God. It doesn't have to be something bad. You can just get so much going on that you don't spend time with God. Isaiah chapter 7, and I'll be through. Isaiah chapter 7. You know, Solomon, Solomon got it all, had it all, enjoyed it all. And he said, you know what it is? He said, it's vanity and it vexes my soul vexation of spirit. He said, all this stuff just vexes me. You can have so much, you can't enjoy any of it. I, was, I tried to give a man in, in the Dominican some money. I had seven men out of my church went to the Dominican, and I told him, I said, bring some cash. We're going to give a guy a nice offering. And this guy was pastoring several churches. When I went into his, what I thought was his church, I went into his church and I, I was going to look at what I thought was the baptistry and I looked in the baptistry and there was a cot and a motor scooter. That's where he lived. And he pastored, I don't know how many churches and just, just walked with God. And we got ready to leave and I said, let's give it to him. And they all agreed. He was the man. We called him Max. I don't remember his name. And when we spent about an hour trying to convince him he needed to take that money, the last thing I remember Max saying to me was, was in broken English and I couldn't speak Spanish and he said, Pastor, you know, understand, money make me weak. Money makes me weak. I know what he meant. Because Americans are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Why is it that it takes a tsunami or a twin towers crash to get people to all of a sudden realize we need God? Because all this stuff gives us a false security. Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Y'all are Bible believers. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Is that Jesus? That's Jesus. Look at the next verse. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Is that what it says? So is there some kind of mystical, powerful thing about butter and honey that makes you wise? No, read the context and consider the life of Jesus Christ. He grew up in poverty. Why do they talk about spoiled rich kids? But they don't talk about spoiled poor kids. Right? Right? Because rich kids have so much, they never learn to be satisfied. 
And the more you have, the more you want. And it takes a bigger thrill and a bigger car and a bigger truck and a shinier this and a shinier that. And the more you have, the more discontented you are. And the less you have, the more contented you learn to be and therefore you have more time and more mental ability to focus on what really matters. Does the Bible not say, and be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You've got to get rid of some of the clutter that occupies your mind. So I'm telling you, church, tonight, that in America we have too many options. You can't fix this overnight. You can't go home and fix it tonight. But if you see something tonight that God's spoken your heart about, get a plan. Start working towards simplifying your life so that you have quiet time and time with God and family devotions and, and wholesome things going on in your life. And even in the ministry, that you not allow yourself to be so occupied with doing things that you forget about Him. Could you stand with me as we pray? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Ask someone to come to the piano. God spoke to your heart tonight. I didn't ask you, Pastor, about an invitation, but I'd like to encourage you to come. I'm going to turn the service over to Him. Father, God, I thank you for the liberty I've enjoyed tonight. I pray it's been a help to your people. I pray, God, you'll use this in their lives to draw them closer to you. And God, I 